0: Which classic television series burst into the 21st century with a groundbreaking, in-your-face, take-no-prisoners attitude declaring gay male sex is hot sex, at the same time showing the many facets of LGBTQ life in the USA? Oh, and should I also mention they managed to be the first to put the word queer into the hands of mainstream America? I can't wait to travel back to the year 2000 and share one of my favorite series of all time. Cue the pulse to begin. Welcome. You're listening to Real Charlie Speaks, an LGBTQ podcast spin off of the film and television review blog Real Charlie looking at movies and TV from a gay male perspective since 2009. I'm your host, Philip R. Each month, I select a classic queer film, television series, or creator. I talk about how the subject spoke to me when I first discovered it years ago and how it stood the test of time. Join me now as we begin another episode adventure. Hello, everyone. First, I'd like to give a quick disclaimer about my voice, I've been struggling a bit with laryngitis for the past nearly two weeks, and this is probably the first time I'm going to be speaking for 30 minutes straight, so we'll just see how this goes, but if you notice anything different, that's what that is, and hopefully next month when, we, when I record the next episode, things will be completely back to normal, so just hang in there with me. So obviously in today's Real Charlie Speaks episode, we are talking about queer as folk, Now, the first logical question is, which Queer as Folk am I going to discuss? For those of you new to the scene, let me briefly explain. The original Queer as Folk, according to Wikipedia, is a 1999 British television series that chronicles the lives of three gay men living in Manchester's gay village around Canal Street. Initially running for eight episodes, a two-part follow-up was shown in 2000. It was written by the amazing Russell T. Davies, who you may know from Second Coming. Russell reinvented the Doctor Who for the 21st century and created the perfection of It's a Sin. The title of the program comes from a historic English saying, There's not so queer as folk, meaning there's nothing as strange as people which is a wordplay on the modern-day English sense of queer as homosexual. The script had originally started life with the title Queer as Fuck, but Queer as Folk was considered more suitable. The British version helped launch the careers of Charlie Hunnam and Aidan Gillen. The producers say that Queer's Folk, although specifically, I should say Queer's Folk although superficially, a realistic depiction of gay urban life in the 1990s is meant as a fantasy and that Stuart, Vince and Nathan, who are the characters in the British version, are not so much characters as gay male archetypes. The Queer as Folk we are going to be discussing on this episode is the American version of Queer's Folk a dramatic television series that ran for five seasons from 2000 to 2005. The series was produced for Showtime. It was developed and written by Ron Cohen and Daniel Lipman, who were the showrunners and also the executive producers, along with Tony Jonas, former president of Warner Brothers Television. The American series follows the lives of five gay men living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There's Brian, who's played by Gail Harold. There's Justin, who's played by Randy Harrison. Michael is played by Hal Sparks. Emmett, played by Peter Page. And Ted, played by Scott Lowell. There's also a lesbian couple involved Lindsay, played by Thea Gill, and Melanie, played by Michelle Clooney. And of course, Michael's mother, Debbie, played by the incomparable Sharon Glass and his uncle Vic, played by Jack Wetherall. And in season two, another main character, Ben, played by Robert Gant, was added. It's really, at this point, 23 years into this, it's kind of hard to explain how exciting it was back in 2000 when this theories came out. There was a lot of criticism that it wasn't serious enough and that it was centered too much around the club scene. There's, there's no doubt that not everyone dips into the club scene when they're young, but a lot of us do, and for many LGBTQ folk, it's a rite of passage. I personally have mountains of amazing memories going out dancing with friends in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, in Atlanta, Georgia, where I moved after college, in New York City, where I lived during the 1990s, and even in my middle age, tea dancing with the older crowd in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, something I love to do. Now, one of the many things that my mom told me to do as she got older, actually af- as she was after she got over 90, and she was a lot less mobile, was to keep on dancing. Also, as the series went on, there was a major amount of criticism about it being too cisgender, too white male focused, but it was freaking groundbreaking, and it's so celebratory and covers a lot of really hardcore, heavy, heavy, heavy subjects that had never been addressed up till this point on television and also it was our television series it was a television series that had been created by a gay man in britain it was a television series that was picked up by a gay couple who were the showrunners and they were producing the series and a number of the cast were queer and the entire cast was extremely gay friendly and allies those of those that were straight You know, the great thing about this show is that we weren't the best friend, we weren't the sidekick, we weren't the minor minor character that gets killed or dies. The straight people were the minor characters and the gay people were the major characters and it was pretty fucking incredible. And honestly, it's still pretty fucking incredible because we can all count on maybe two hands the amount of series that have been created since then that have lead gay characters or lead queer characters. I decided to watch three pivotal episodes, which to me are the essence of what Queer as Folk is all about. So today I'll be discussing the pilot, which is a two-parter, the Christmas episode, and the Cindy Lauper episode. So here we go. The pilot was actually a two-part episode for obvious reasons. There were a lot of characters to introduce and there were a lot of storylines to explore. Let's just dig into this. Let me first talk about the theme song for a bit. The theme song for the first season or two was kind of atrocious. (laughs) Um, I have over the years tried to sort of think differently about it, but I actually hated it. I hated it from the start. I didn't understand what they were trying to get at. And I'm, when I'm talking about the theme song, I'm specifically talking about the music. I'm not talking about the visuals that go along with the music. The music to me was very kind of bro, which isn't what the series is about at all. I, I don't know if it was an expression of masculinity from the producers. Um, this The theme song is kind of faux punk in some ways. Fear not, it does get a lot better in later seasons. They sort of take the essence of... The um, the theme song and they soften it and they really um, add graphics to it that are specific for the cast and it's absolutely gorgeous. But for the first season or two, um, the graphics are great. The images are great. It's a lot of go-go boys dancing and grinding and it's really your first indication when you watch this for the very first time that this series is going to be totally in your face with its sexuality. Now, keep in mind that I, with all those, you know, there's been controversy over this, there's been controversy over that. I love this series. It's one of my favorite television series of all times, and I am positive it will stay that way for the rest of my life. 23 years in, all three of these episodes held up brilliantly. So the pilot, the very first scene that we see is the nightclub scene in Babylon, And I honestly don't think I ever saw a gay nightclub depicted so realistically in my entire life. So from that very first moment, you actually get shivers from how incredible the club scene is. Of course, full disclosure, as I mentioned, I'm a huge dance person. I love dancing my whole life. So if somebody watching this series hates dancing or hates noisy clubs or gets intimidated by muscular gay guys, obviously this is probably not going to be the series for you, but The rest of us, it's absolutely glorious. And let me also give a shout out to a group of people. None of these scenes, none of the group scenes in all five seasons of this show would have been made possible without the beautiful extras from the Toronto club scene and from Toronto in general. They populated so many incredible moments in this series, starting with this very first glimpse of Babylon, the nightclub in fictional Pittsburgh. The first words we hear are from Michael Novotny, one of several main characters. Using voiceover, Michael explains why everyone is there at 1 in the morning instead of being at home sleeping in bed. We see him in person at the club, and we also see him with his best buds Emmett and Ted, and then we very quickly get introduced to Brian. Brian Kinney is the guy in Pittsburgh that can get any man he wants. And just when you think you're starting to figure things out, the producers push the envelope out into the stratosphere because Brian takes this guy he's been dancing with from the dance floor to the back room of the club, which again, I don't think I've ever seen that done in television before. And it's very rare that I've seen it since then. I suppose the film Cruising The Al Pacino film may have had backroom scenes. I never watched that movie because I boycotted it, but I do think the few clips that I've seen, they may have shown some like sort of hardcore leather scenes. But these, this backroom is the backroom of a glitzy, glamorous club. So there's lots of sex going on, but it's not like, you know, whips and chains, so to speak. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And again, God bless those Toronto extras. Um, in this scene in particular, many of them are really close to being naked. Um, but again, realize that this is R-rated Showtime television. This isn't a porn film. It's not NC-17. It's really, they push it as far as they can absolutely push it, but it doesn't go any further than that. Just like any other straight series that has sex scenes in it that you would have seen for the last you know, 3,000 years. Cut to the street and Justin shows up. Justin is a high school senior and it's his first time ever at a gay bar. Brian sees Justin, he picks him up and takes him back to his apartment and starts to seduce him. They have sex. It's pretty graphic. Again, it's graphic in sort of an R rated way, but it's very graphic in that you've never really seen two men this intimate with this few amount of clothing um, in anything. It's, it's, you know, it's the kind of sex scene that you've seen in straight films forever. But in 2000, to see this in a gay series was just remarkable. You know, and again, keep in mind that female, female sex scenes, lesbian sex scenes have been used in film and television for a long time, but not as a vehicle to propel a story forward about two women in love, but it simply was titillation for straight men male male sex scenes or even romantic scenes with two men were seen as disgusting by Hollywood and the television industry. So, you know, it's the whole adage that I've been living with for my whole life. It's okay to kill him, just don't kiss him. And seriously, that is what this is all about. Justin and Brian get interrupted by a phone call. This is actually the beginning of an extremely strong plot point that gets unveiled. We don't know who's on the other end of the phone, but later we find out that Brian's best friend from college, Lindsay, and her lesbian lover, Melanie, just had a baby, and Brian is the biological father. Another complaint of the show is that there were just gay men in the show, but Lindsay and Melanie were anchors throughout this entire series. They were definitely the strong lesbian couple... They went through a lot of changes with each other. They ended up together at the end, which I think is just an amazing tribute to their their relationship. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, Michael's mother gets introduced a little bit later as well, and she's a primary character. So there's women in the series. There's lesbians in the series. I mean, is the series about gay white men together? Yes, it is. It's about the five of them. But there's a group of people who form a family and are a part of this Pittsburgh gay scene. So the boys rush to the hospital to meet the baby who gets named Gus. Michael and Brian's personalities really come out in this episode. Brian's narcissistic. He has to be the center of attention. Michael is sweet and kind and has a not so veiled unrequited love for Brian. They've been friends since the middle, since middle school. We find out... In this episode that Justin is only 17 now in the British version that character was actually 15. But the age of consent is 16 in Pennsylvania so there's no laws being broken here. It's of course controversial, but it's also what most gay teens did before they were coming out at the same age as their counterparts were starting to show interest in others. Most of us had to wait until we were away from our friends, away from our family, before we could find someone to explore our sexuality with. So hopefully today, for a lot of kids at least, not all, um, that's different and that teens, no matter what their sexuality, can safely explore with other teens closer to their age in an age-appropriate time um, and with age-appropriate people. So again, even though these scenes are R-rated, they're still very verbally graphic the placement of the bodies is also pretty graphic. And I say all of that in a really good way. Like I was thrilled to see all of this because I have spent my whole life seeing depictions of straight sex in, in films and TVs for all sorts of reasons, you know, for legitimate reasons to push the pop, push the plot point, for um, titillation reasons, all sorts of reasons. And so I was like, fuck yes, Queer as Folk is giving us the do. It's great. You know, there's another criticism of the show that it was too in your face, but I felt like nothing had been done like this before. For sure, Queers Folk paved the way for other shows like Looking and the recent phenomenal series Fellow Travelers, which I'm not to date this episode, but I'm watching the final episode this evening, actually. Um, which has had very explicit gay male sex scenes. Queer as Folk was envelope-pushing in regards to explicit but intimate sex and also being very clear about safer sex, which was incredible for that time period. Now, one of the annoying things about Brian's character, and there's a lot of annoying things about Brian's character, um, you know, he is the character that is the cad. He is the character that is the um, manonizer as opposed to a womanizer. One of the things that really bothered me was his relationship with street drugs. And it's really shown very clearly in this first episode. He's constantly criticizing people throughout all five seasons that they can't handle their drugs. And yet he constantly is doing street drugs and doing too many street drugs. But, you know, he's got this high powered advertising job, really high powered advertising job, and he manages to party hard on the weekend and then get right back to it on Monday morning. So the next morning after Brian and Justin have had incredible sex, including Justin losing his virginity, Brian has to get into his car from Michael, who drove them to the hospital the night before. And it turns out that Brian's Jeep has been vandalized and spray painted with the word faggot in print. I'm sorry, faggot in, pr- in pink in the in the in spray paint, pink spray paint, the word faggot. Through all of this, we find out that Michael is still closeted at work. He sort of works at a place called Walmart. like It's a called Qmart, but it's sort of like a Walmart-type store. Emmett, who we learn very soon, is really the heart of the show and also um, the unapologetic um, gay activist in the show as well. He works at a gay men's clothing boutique, and Ted's an accountant at a very conservative accounting firm. A little ways into the second episode of the pilot, part two of the pilot, Michael takes Justin to the Liberty Diner, which is also kind of the go-to eatery for Liberty Avenue, which is this fictional gay section of Pittsburgh. Um, And it was filmed, all of this was filmed in beautiful downtown Toronto, all of the exterior shots. The diner scene is where Debbie Novotny is introduced. Debbie Novotny is played by, as I mentioned earlier, the amazing Sharon Glass in just a award-winning performance. Even though Debbie seems like a character caricature of a small town gay life, she really is one of the most amazing characters ever to be on television. She's a mother for everyone. She eventually gets her own romance storyline, which is fabulous. She is literally the ally of allies. No one's a better mom to a better group of young LGBT people than Debbie. And Of course, Michael gets to call her his real mom, which is fantastic. The characters in the ensemble have multiple story arcs throughout the five seasons. Certainly, Brian and Michael in the beginning are considered the lead characters, but really it becomes an ensemble pretty quickly, and everyone is included in that ensemble. Debbie, Justin, Brian, Michael, Emmett, Ted, Melanie, Lindsay, and Ben. They all experience triumphs and struggles, joy and heartache, They're surrounded by so much love and support from their friends and community. So back at Debbie's house, we are introduced to, I guess this would be the last main character that we're introduced to in the pilot. Um, So her brother and Michael's uncle, Vic, is an older gay man in his 50s. He's been living with HIV and it's implied he's been close to death a couple times in the past, but he's now not dying anymore because of the medication of the late 90s. He is, however, in Extreme amounts of debt because he and Debbie traveled thinking that he was going to die soon. So he has to figure out how to get himself sort of square financially. And the last line and the best line of this pilot episode is Brian explaining to Justin how he looks at life. And this is Brian talking to Justin. I don't believe in love. I believe in fucking. It's honest, it's efficient. You get in and out with a maximum of pleasure and a minimum of bullshit. And that is the end of the pilot. The setup is, of course, that Brian is the beautiful, sexy, alluring asshole that you can't help but love or at least think you want to love or think that maybe you be the one that can change him. The balance to all of this is that literally all of the other characters surrounding Brian are just regular middle class gay and lesbian Americans looking for their piece of the pie. They're looking for a great career. They're looking for love and commitment and family, which they find with their friends and with Debbie, who's everyone's surrogate mom. So, as I mentioned, I really felt like, in order to give queer as folk its due, I should watch three episodes. So, that was the first episode. That was the pilot. It was a two-parter, so we went on a bit with that, but I just felt like it was important to kind of get everyone's feet firmly planted in the Queer as Folk world before we continued on. So now the second episode that I want to talk about is what I call the Christmas episode. The title of the episode is actually Preponderance of Death, and it's from Season 4, Episode 7. So it sounds like a really upbeat title, right? a <laughs> preponderance of death. We're jumping into season four. A lot has happened to these characters over the last four years. I mentioned Michael's uncle, Vic, who's introduced in the pilot. Vic was initially the one character who has HIV. There ended up being two more characters with HIV. Michael's partner, Ben, who's introduced in season two, is HIV positive, And they end up adopting a teenage runaway boy named Hunter. And really, all three of these men serve as HIV archetypes in their three different generations. So Hunter is the young teenager dealing with it in the 2000s. Ben is the 30-something who takes really good care of himself and is aggressively fighting it with medication and diet. And then Vic, of course, is our long-term survivor. He's lost all of his friends, and he's sort of is sort of shocked to learn that he is still alive. So all that said, I want you to just take a minute and take a breath because I'm kind of going to, I'm going to now zoom forward to a really difficult period in the Queer as Folk world. So the episode before this Christmas episode that we're going to talk about, Vic dies. And it's a shock to everyone. Everybody assumed that Vic was doing really well on the new meds and he was, and that he had overcome so much and he was going to live a full life. But then he ended up having a heart attack and dying. So now that you know that, let's jump into this episode. And by the way, the theme song got so much better by season four. So yay and thank you to whomever uh, figured that one out and is responsible for that. Just lovely. The opening, interestingly enough, is very similar to the opening of the pilot. I had no idea when I selected these three episodes that that would be the case. It wasn't until I watched them yesterday in preparation for the podcast that I was like, holy cow. So the interesting thing, though, and the sophisticated point to this is that by season four, yeah, it looks like a retread. We're back in Babylon. The go-go boys are in thongs. They're shaking their booties. They're shaking their crotches. And it's a lot of like close ups of men's crotches, the go go dancers, the guys on the dance floor. But it's extremely deceptive because the camera's not focusing on all of this for titillation. We find out very soon in this episode that it's focusing on this because Brian is going to be facing testicular cancer in this season. Updates of everybody else Ted has fallen into a drug addiction, he's now in recovery and has run into Blake, a guy he had a short relationship with before he became addicted to drugs, who left him when he overdosed. Blake is now in recovery himself and is a drug counselor. Next, we see Michael, Ben, Hunter, and Emmett in black suits waiting for Debbie to come downstairs so they can go to Vic's funeral. The backstory to this is that Debbie and Vic had a falling out and weren't speaking to each other when he died. So on top of grieving, Debbie's experiencing this ridiculous remorse. Vic's boyfriend, Rodney, um, that's one of the amazingly happy things is that Vic found love late in his life and he and Rodney moved in together even. So that was lovely. Um, So Rodney gives Deb a letter that Vic wrote a couple years ago when he was really sick and she has a revelation. She thinks she can make up for the fight by throwing a gigantic Christmas party in February, in Vic's honor, since he told her in the letter that that was really his favorite holiday. In other plot lines, Michael and Ben find Hunter smoking a joint in their house. Justin's shocked to learn that Brian doesn't want to have sex for maybe the first time in their relationship. Of course, all of this is due to his cancer diagnosis, which nobody knows about. The next scene is Debbie full throttle on Christmas decorations, and if you know the character of Debbie, you know that the word modest is not in her vocabulary. She's really, really decorating the shit out of her living room in preparation for this celebration of life. Blake tells Ted he can't be romantic with him because of the program and his sobriety. Hunter gets into a fight at school because he's worried that he's going to die next, even though he's completely healthy and a high schooler. And then Ted ends up getting drugs from someone he knows while Justin and Emmett hang out at Babylon and Justin tries to figure out what's going on with Brian. Justin even brings home two really hot guys for Brian and they are both naked when Brian arrives back at the condo. At this point, the series has shown a whole lot of full frontal male nudity and good for them because it's balancing all of the full frontal female that's been shown over the course of the last millennium. Brian turns down the off, the offer, and Justin is really confused at this point. Um, Ted, back to Ted. Ted tells Blake about his temptation. Emmett forgives Ted. They had had a falling out. Brian tells Justin and his business partner he's going to Ibiza when, in reality, he's going for the surgery. Debbie's party is a huge success, including a drag queen named Chandelier, who's who has a subplot in previous seasons. Um, Dressed up in a Christmas outfit, limp syncing with two go-go boys on the staircase in Debbie's tiny working class home. It's absurd and it's classic Debbie. And so after the performance, you can even hear Anne Murray in the background singing a Christmas song, which I absolutely think was a nod to Canada since they filmed in Toronto. Debbie ends up accidentally dropping the glass angel for the top of the tree, which means that her celebration's not perfect, which she wanted everything to be perfect. And she falls apart in front of everyone, sort of finally giving herself the permission to begin her grieving process over Vic. This is a really beautiful episode, and it shows the depth and diversity of stories in Queer as Folk, which is why I chose this as the second episode that I wanted to talk about. The final episode we will discuss is from the fifth and final season. It's season five, episode 10. And the title of this episode is simply three words. The title of the episode is I Love You. It's a very intense episode. The gang in all of Liberty Avenue and all of Pennsylvania is fighting Prop 14, a fictitious state initiative that would take away same-sex couple rights the opening of the episode is really, really intense. Debbie, Michael, Ben, and Justin are all putting up signs about the benefit of Babylon featuring Cyndi Lauper against Prop 14. They're outside on Liberty Avenue and suddenly a line of cars drives by with support Prop 14 signage and people with megaphones yelling about protecting marriage between a man and a woman. You know, after 23 years... These things would seem like distant relics, but of course they're not because we're fighting for this today and we'll be fighting for this next year in 2024 for the soul and the survival of our nation. So back to Queer as Folk. Brian finds out that he's cancer-free, so he decides to go to Mardi Gras in Sydney to celebrate. Melanie and Lindsay have been separated, but they have really hot breakup sex the night before and are dealing with the repercussions of that. Brian and Michael are Also estranged as friends, um, but Michael has to ask him to use Babylon, which Brian purchased recently. Of course, he just purchased Babylon recently for the benefit, since the hotel they were going to decided not to allow them to rent the space, caving into the homophobes. Emmett's main squeeze is professional football player Drew Boyd, who just recently claimed came out of the closet himself. And is struggling with his identity and whether he's going to continue to play football. Emmett really wants him to come to the Prop 14 benefit. This was one of my favorite, just like ridiculous, queer folk plot lines, which had Emmett went in so many different directions in these five years. But when Emmett met Drew Boyd, um, it was like electricity and it was like sort of everyone's fantasy of meeting some really hot, um, you know, Beautiful, muscular football player or athlete who then ends up like actually coming out of the closet and being your boyfriend. It just was so much fun. And nobody deserved this more than Emmett. Emmett, the character of Emmett, played by Peter Page, is definitely my favorite character in Queer as Folk. The big day finally arrives with about half of the main characters at Babylon for the benefit to see Cindy Lauper and to raise all this money against Prop 14. Debbie. Has to work late, so she's missing at least the beginning of it. Brian's on his way to Australia, so he's in a car on his way to the airport. Michael's there with Ben uh, at Babylon. Justin's also there. Justin's mom and her new boyfriend, who Justin hates, which is really funny because the boyfriend's young. And basically, Justin's mom and her new boyfriend are exactly Brian and Justin. So it's pretty funny that Justin can't stand the new boyfriend so they're there, Ted's there with a date. Um, Emmett is the MC of the evening and he introduces Cyndi Lauper who performs a song. It's so exciting. This is just a picture perfect queer as folk moment. And Cyndi Lauper who is the ally of allies on the show that broke all the glass ceilings for queer content is just amazing. It's just really, really exciting. It's, it's a major high point. And then everything goes wrong. An explosive device goes off in the middle of the club. I had forgotten how emotional this scene is for me. I had been watching all three of these episodes and loving every moment of all of them. But when this happened, and I knew it was going to happen because this is the fourth time I've watched this episode, I fell apart. And I know that in part of it is because in 2005... They dared to put this into a plot and everybody probably thought, well, this is never going to happen. But then in 2016 and then again in 2022, real life imitated art at the Pulse nightclub and the Club Q nightclubs. So again, I'm not going to go on and on. This is a podcast about film and television, but I have three words to say, and that is gun control now. Everybody's accounted for, but then we find out that Michael's been critically injured, so the scene moves to the hospital. Michael gets operated on. Melanie and Lindsay reconcile. Brian and Debbie meet at the hospital chapel. Back at the nightclub, Cindy Lauper's seen in a fireman's coat helping rescue people, and Brian finds Justin in the crowd. Brian tells Justin that he loves him for the very first time. This is season five. Brian's been this, fuck you, I'm going to do what I'm going to do with my life. I'm not going to get involved emotionally with people. And Justin has accepted this and loved him. And they have this really great relationship. But this moment is when Brian says to Justin, I love you. And this is obviously where the title of the episode comes from. It's an extremely emotional episode. There's three more episodes after this, and then the series ends. And the series ends on such a high note. It's just really, really fantastic. I can't talk about Queer as Folk without thanking my dear friend, Lynn Rogers, who used to send me VHS tapes of Queer as Folk and Six Feet Under for me to watch back in the the early 2000s after I had left New York City for the Catskills, and I was slowly figuring out my life post-HIV disability. Lynn and I had been best friends since we were five and six years old, and we had a falling out after that. Um, In the late 2000s, we had a falling out. And we didn't speak to each other for years. And then she got sick from cancer, and she died last year. And we didn't ever reconcile. This really sounds like something from TV, but it's not. It's real life. I don't know if there's a moral to that for me or for you. I don't know if people should try to make up. I don't know the answers to anything to tell you the truth. But I do know that Lynn and I both loved Queer as Folk, we loved Six Feet Under, and we loved The L Word, which came out a couple years later. The 2000s were an absolute magical time for television, including The Wire in that. I'm so happy I've been able to finally celebrate that here on Real Charlie Speaks and really specifically focus on Queer as Folk, which sometimes I don't think gets its due diligence. So I love Queer as Folk. I love it today as much as I loved it 23 years ago. And I hope this episode um, makes you want to go back and watch uh, some of the episodes. You know, looking at its influences, Tales of the City predates Queers Folk by eight years, the, um, the original PBS version, and then the two sequels after that. The L Word started four years after Queers Folk aired. And then in subsequent years and in alphabetical order, these shows have really shown that LGBT characters can lead a series and their romantic and sexual lives can be celebrated rather than hidden or hated. So I'm going to start with Bonding. Um, f to the seventh, The Fosters, which is Peter Page's series. Um, Peter Page went on to be a showrunner for television, a writer, a director, and he created the Fosters. Glee, uh, the the uh, limited series Hollywood, The Limited series, It's a Sin, which I mentioned earlier, um, Russell T. Davies amazing, amazing, um, amazing sh- limited series about the AIDS crisis. Uh, Looking from HBO, Orange is the New Black from Netflix, The Alts, Pose, Sex Education, and Special. So I want to wrap up this quote from my own review, my Real Charlie review, third time watching season one. And this is the quote. I dipped back into the show's first season. 18 years later, Queer as Folk doesn't disappoint. It's still the only show that's ever shown in your face unab- unashamed gay male sexuality, solo, couples, threesomes, group play, in both loving and lustful moments. Looking took a more refined look at sexuality. Queer as folk put it front and center and in your face. A vocal part of, our queer, of our, a vocal part of our culture continues to be afraid of two men loving instead of killing each other. Queer's Folk remains as relevant and necessary as it was when it premiered in 2000. Many thanks to showrunners Ron Cohen and Daniel Lipman, who adapted and expanded the British series for American television, five out of five for this classic television series. You know, I mentioned Fellow Travelers earlier, which I am loving so much. Fellow Travelers finally takes the viewer to the next step in gay male sex scenes, I feel like. You know, the creator, Ron Nicewaner was in a Zoom interview last week, and he said that every sex scene in Fellow Travelers, just like every other scene, has to propel the storyline forward. And he specifically mentioned the change in power dynamics in each of his sex scenes between men. I believe that Queer as Folk did for television and for our culture was to normalize gay male sex. It showed so many different ways gay men celebrate their sexuality. It took gay male sex out of the shadows. It showed how much fun sex can be. And then it did it in the middle of the AIDS crisis. No one knew if the new meds were really going to last. PrEP hadn't arrived on the scene. U equals U hadn't arrived on the scene So there weren't the game changers that there are today with HIV and people. The producers did these scenes with a lot of condoms and a whole lot of love. And as I just discussed, there was so much to Queer as Folk. Yes, it was about sex, but it was also about friendship, love, commitment, family, community, and activism. The online world had just begun in Queer as Folk. Um, Apps had yet to destroy bar culture so there was still a sense of excitement as to what your saturday night might look like it's a time capsule of the world when gay men could take a breath and imagine aids if not yet beatable maybe a little more manageable negative guys could still say stay safe and positive guys could live queer's folk was groundbreaking and the american version got to tell so many stories of the brave men and women who inhabited this fictional Pittsburgh community of friends, families, and loved ones. 23 years later, I still love Queer as Folk. Thank you so much for listening to Real Charlie Speaks. Up next, a special request from my podcast mentor, Brad Shreve. Until next time, I'm Philip ri I am Real Charlie, and this is Real Charlie Speaks.